Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live, multi-ethnic conservatism. Americans with diverse backgrounds seek to conserve what's good about America. We're thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Please submit your questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We love to know who's joining us. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience, as many of us are working from home and using home internet. I now invite Angela Saylor, the Vice President of Heritage's Edwin J. Fulner Institute to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Angela Saylor, and I'm the Vice President of the Edwin J. Fulner Institute here at the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of our President Kay Coles James, thank you so much for joining us for our engaging virtual event titled Multi-Ethnic Conservatism, Americans with Diverse Backgrounds Seeking to Conserve What's Good About America. The 2020 election uh, continues to mystify many in the media and coastal elites. In Florida, Cuban-American and Puerto Rican voters helped deliver the state for President Trump. In the Rio Grande Valley, Texas, Texas's Mexican-American heartland also turned out in unexpected numbers for President Trump. Even the Golden State, Chinese-American parents organized to turn back an attempt to reintroduce racial preferences in university admissions. And throughout the country, African-American voters, especially men, voted for President Trump in also delivering unexpected rates. So let's just talk about a quick recap of the things that we've seen so far. The nation witnessed historic engagement in an age of hyperactivism with the backdrop of a recession, Supreme Court vacancies, sustained mass protests, and a global pandemic. We have seen the highest voter turnout since 1900, the 1900s, with 83% of registered voters believing it really matters who wins as compared to 50% in 2000. And spending, spending on the 2020 elections has exceeded all prior records at $13.9 billion as compared to five to six billion in previous years. So here we are, American politics remain closely divided. And President Trump has been cutting into the Clinton coalition which Biden had hoped to get. And voters are seeking major change. And in doing so, they've used down ballots to make their voices heard. So much to discuss today. So we invite you again to send your questions throughout the event, as we'll have an opportunity to respond and engage those questions throughout the program. Today, our distinguished panel will give us their perspectives on what's happening and why, and an analysis of whether identity politics has become the biggest loser of the 2020 election. At the conclusion of the event, we hope you will better understand the circumstances, policies, and issues that are driving the formation of new coalitions during this election cycle. And we hope that you will understand what's required to nurture the new coalitions through policy engagement, and finally, how to sustain the relationships and expand our reach. Ladies and gentlemen, our featured guests include the Honorable Francisco Conseco, who's the Director, Election Protection Project for the Texas Policy Foundation. He is a licensed attorney who formerly served in the U.S. Congress representing the 23rd Congressional District of Texas. The former congressman served on the House Financial Services Committee and authored legislation for a constitutional economy, promoting border security and challenging EPA overreach. Our second guest, Ying Ma, 
former communications director for the No on Proposition 16 campaign and author of Chinese Girl in the Ghetto. Ying is a policy expert and communications professional who serves as a member of the Board of Advisors for the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. And she's also a contributor to Fox News Opinion, NBC News, Think, The Washington Examiner, and The National Interest. Our third guest is Lenny McAllister, who is the CEO of the Pennsylvania Coalition of Public Charter Schools and a senior fellow for the Commonwealth Foundation. He has spent years working in both state and national politics, the civil rights community, and extensive work in the media. Lenny makes regular appearances on radio, New Zealand, and Sirius XM radio in addition to CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. And my colleague, Mike Gonzalez, Senior Fellow for Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy, and Angelus T. R. Arandondo, E. Pluribus Unum Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Mike is also the author of The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. Mike has spent close to 20 years as a journalist and 15 of them reporting from Europe, Asia, and Latin America. When he left his career as a journalist, he joined the Pre President Bush's uh, team over at the, um, the administration for securities and exchange, uh, working for the chairman there, Christopher Cox. And then he moved on uh, to the State Department's European Bureau. So as you can see, we have an incredible lineup for you today. And I am going to ask Congressman Conseco to join me on the screen. We are looking and delving in um, as, as we look at what happened uh, in the Rio Grande in Texas, where vote margins shifted drastically in 2020 in favor of President Trump. Congressman Conseco, I'm gonna toss it over to you to help us understand the historical backdrop and what's going on here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Angela, for having me here. And I hope I can leave, uh, shed some light on, on what happened here. But factually, we have many counties historically from Brownsville all the way to El Paso that have traditionally always voted Democrat. Um, this time around, you had a very amazing change with Frio County, Val Verde County, Zapata County, LaSalle County, Kennedy and Claiborne County that, that turned red from blue. And you had the other uh, counties in the valley that had a much higher percentage of people voting for uh, President Trump than had in the past. And there are many reasons for this. Uh, some may call it a phenomenon and others a very natural growth in a very American population. We have to look at a little bit about the history of this whole area. And uh, not to bore you with history, but the idea that many people started coming into these areas back in the early part of the 18th century under the Bourbon reforms. Uh, people were colonized uh, a lot of the ranch areas along the river and set up communities and set up churches and and uh, populations there. Uh, later, as time went on, you had uh, a war with uh, with Mexico, two wars with Mexico, one of them for the Texas independence that did not gain south of the Nueces River, but yet there was a lot of friction between the Nueces River and the Rio Norte del Bravo and uh, the, uh, the Rio, where we call the Rio Grande. In 1846 through 1848, you had a huge war with Mexico that conquered a lot of those areas there and populations that needed to decide whether they're going to be American or whether they're going to be a Mexican. Those that did not have land moved to the other side of the border. Those that had land stayed on the northern part. As time went on, uh, you had railways coming through there. You had a lot of traffic going through there. During the Civil War, the river was very navigable and helped the uh, Confederate states get their cotton out to Europe, etc. But these populations, especially in the valley, a lot of the 
uh, Mexican or Hispanic populations were either workers in, um, in the fields or there were merchants in the city. Uh, after the uh, uh, Mexican-American War in the 1840s, uh, you had a lot of them sort of uh, becoming patrons of, uh, of a lot of the landowning Anglo people that, that lived in that area. But coming to uh, recent days, uh, post-World War II, uh, you had a lot of them that adhered to a patron system. Uh, neighbors or opinion leaders or mayors that controlled the population and told them how to vote and told them what was best for them. Over the years, they grew tired of having these empty promises not fulfilled. You had a huge amount of commerce and trade coming through there. The port of Laredo being an example as the biggest land port in the nation with tons and billions of, of uh, dollars of goods crossing through that border. Uh, at the same time in areas like McAllen and other areas there, you had businesses growing, both from Mexican populations that went into those areas and saw it convenient to run their business out of the United States because it was easier to do business in the United States and with a greater trade through the North. So what you're seeing is people realizing that their lot is with an American way, a seeking of an American system. With Donald Trump, uh, I think what happened is that it appealed to a lot of these people that there was a certain sense of machismo in, in the president in getting things done and really serving the people with palpable, tactile um, facts of, of what he did on the ground in order to improve the lot economically and socially with a lot of these people. Uh, going forward, I think that what you've got is a, an awakening of a population that was otherwise somewhat controlled, even though I don't mean to sound it insulting, uh, being told that one side is just a lot meaner and uh, not as kind as, as another. And I see that my time is up, but the idea being that they are now beginning to embrace more fully of their Americanism. Thank you so much, Congressman. We are we're looking forward to being able to peel back the onion on on the information you shared a little later in the program. Um, and but I want to continue to uh, bring our other guests to to make their short presentations so that we can have that more robust conversation. You know, identity politics um, will only go but so far. And Ying Ma uh, is going to give us insight on how Proposition 16, an affirmative action proposal, failed and the opportunities for conservatives to capture an audience with Chinese voters amid the community's rejection of the liberal establishment in California and their progressive agenda. Ying, welcome to the screen. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's great to be here with um, all of you, and, and it's always great to be at a heritage event. Um, could I get the first slide, please? We're obviously living in interesting times, and I want to talk about a battle that was waged in California by Americans of Asian descent, and it was a fight for equality. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and this was truly um, truly historic in so many ways, but let me just give you guys a quick idea of what it was all about. Um, the goal was to prevent the res restoration of race-based affirmative action in California. And so essentially what our campaign sought to do, the No on Proposition 16 campaign sought to do was to keep the words um, on your screen in, this ca in the California Constitution. Proposition 16 on the ballot sought to erase those words and to repeal a ban on race-based affirmative action in public employment, education, and public contracting. Next slide, please. 
Um, and it was a David versus Goliath battle for so many reasons, but funding was a big part of it. We were outspent 16 to one, um, and we were opposed by practically the entire California establishment. And I'm talking about people in the political world, people in business, the media establishment, practically everybody who thought of themselves as anybody was against our campaign. Next slide, please. And, you know, on top of that, our opponents had the winds of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as a lot of the protests that happened this year, those winds at their backs, at least they thought they did. And, you know, and one of their biggest, um, biggest justifications for um, for trying to reverse the ban on race-based affirmative action was that, the, you know, was that uh, they felt there was systemic racism. And they felt that the best way to go about um, correcting that problem um, was to um, was to was through Proposition 16. Next slide, please. And as it turned out, they were gravely wrong. They were wrong about um, the problem because a lot of Californians didn't think, um, didn't agree with um, their assessment of the problem. They were also wrong about the solution and they were wrong about Californians in general. So if you look at the map, all of the red areas in California voted on our side, which is those are the Californians who voted against restoring race-based affirmative action in government decisions, and that's a margin of 57 to 43. That is a resounding victory. Next slide, please. And none of this would have been possible without the support of a vast army of dedicated Asian American volunteers and donors. And many of them were participating in the political process for the first time, which is why this particular battle was so um, historic and so exciting um, and so interesting. Over 90% of the people who donated to our campaign were Americans of Asian descent. And um, keep in mind that all the big money went to the other side. And so the folks who donated to us were people donating small dollar amounts, $25, $50, you know, $75. And so this particular political movement um, was, you know, what was exciting in so many ways um, because it gave voice to a group of people who, um, some of whom weren't even participating in politics before this election. Next slide, please. And our appeal was we were appealing to all Californians. We believed in equality, and it wasn't just equality for certain groups. We believed in equality for everybody. For everybody. Next slide, please. And and our fellow Californians responded overwhelmingly. And I am talking about everybody across the political spectrum. I'm talking about people of all different races, all different colors, all different um, ethnicities. And as you can see from the numbers there, Asian Americans, um, this is from a poll that was taken just before the election. So, you know, you've got a breakdown of Asian Americans as well as Latinos, as well as whites and blacks. But um, this victory took place all across the political spectrum, um, across different ethnic groups. Um, next slide, please. And in many ways, this was a rejection of a number of long-standing Asian American groups that have for decades failed so spectacularly at serving the people they claim to represent. These groups didn't really speak the language of the people that they claim to represent, and they didn't, they didn't spend a whole lot of time getting to know their concerns. Um, they just very much thought that they knew what was best for the people they claimed to represent. And this was a resounding rejection of those types of so-called civil rights organizations. Uh, next slide, please. And while we were while this was happening, keep in mind that this was not some sort of vast Republican campaign. California is a very blue state, and in this very blue, deep blue state, Joe Biden defeated. Donald Trump um, by nearly two to one, and so we're talking. And, and so we're talking about voters across this very blue state responding overwhelmingly to our message of equality. Next slide, please. And of course, it didn't. You know, it, it didn't escape people that some of the people who, some of the very people who were promoting racial preferences were some were some of the most racist people out there. This is um, a post we. Put up on our, our um, on our Twitter page of a um, of a Democratic lawmaker in California making anti anti Asian comments um, some years ago, um, and you know and and it did certainly didn't escape us that those people who are claiming 
um, to fight for for social justice. People who are um, yammering on about racial preferences, they are actually some of the most racist people of them all. Next slide, please. And so, um, I, since we have a limited amount of time, um, I, you know, I, I think so. This is a picture from one of our our rallies, and what I want to you know do is just congratulate my colleagues again, congratulate our volunteers and donors again. This was truly an effort by the people, um, of the people, and for the people. You know, we had very few resources, and we fought the battle, and it was against great odds, and and we prevailed. And it was a group of people who stuck their necks out, and who and and they fought for a fundamental American ideal, and it was the ideal of equality. Thank you. I'll, I'll stop there. Ying, that was that was incredible. Um, the slides really helped to allow us to kind of walk through what you were saying and take it all in. Um, so again, we're we're going to be excited to to delve deeper uh, as we go into the discussion component of 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 this event. Again, please lodge your questions in the question box because we want to get you in on the conversation. I want to turn to Lenny McAllister to talk about um, one of the, the voting blocks that's really mystifying the country, and that's the African-American vote uh, for, for the president, and more specifically, Lenny, um, that, that high percent, 18% coming across for, from black males. Uh, and so we're seeing you know, an uptick even from um, the last election back in 2000 and um, 16. So I want to give you the floor uh, to talk about the dynamic of, of the African-American vote and more specifically the black male vote. Well, thank you, Angela. I appreciate being here as always. And I think one of the things we have to look at first and foremost is that this dynamic within the African-American community in 2020 is a twofold dynamic. You have some dynamics that are specifically due to politics and political changes, but a lot of it obviously still boils down to policies as well. Going into 2020, this is one of the very first presidential years where states such as Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and even Texas, you know, big states that you heard about throughout the, the news cycles throughout 2020, allowed their voters to not have a straight ticket option. So what does that mean? If you look at the Democratic Party and the way they construct their voting base, it's overwhelmingly with minorities and particularly with the African-American vote. Many of you may have heard that African-American women, for example, generally speaking, vote from 95 to 100 percent of the time with the Democratic Party. And black men usually are between 90 to 93 percent. Now that you take away the straight ticket voting option, it shifts the vote on Election Day and early voting towards policies and personalities. And I think this is where things start coming into play. When people start contrasting what they were seeing from the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, people started making choices on what they viewed as being leadership, but also what they viewed as being policies that allowed for advancement for these communities. A lot of times people talk and, and point back to the pandemic as being something that prompted this high turnout with voting and, and quite naturally with a downturn in the economy, there were many, many people that came out because they wanted to see some leadership moving through the pandemic. But people also forget, aside from the healthcare parameters that we're dealing with, aside from some of the other things that we're obviously going through as a country, you have to look at things such as education and how did leaders deal with education and what were African-American voters dealing with as a result of prior policies once the pandemic came to our shores. So when you start looking at policies such as school choice, you start looking at economic empowerment, you start looking at some of the occupation and achievement gaps that you saw between blacks and whites in the country for decades that were bubbling up and now overflowed during the pandemic. African-American voters started making choices on policies. They started looking and seeing, are my local public schools closed and what options do my kids have to have continuity of education. They said the same thing about their jobs. They said the same thing about their society being open. Can I get the resources that my family needs? And when they started looking at that, without being forced into a straight ticket option, they started choosing and splitting their ticket. And you start seeing the percentages going in different directions. And it helps to explain why, despite the presidency as of now being in flux, 
you see that Republicans held gains at the statewide level. They made gains in the U.S. House of Representatives. And as of right now, they're holding on to the U.S. Senate. What people also overlook out there is the fact that with a lot of the pushback and the racial tensions that we have seen throughout 2020, that a lot of the blowback came towards Democratic leaders. A lot of times people point to examples such as Joe Biden saying, you ain't black in regards to his interview with Charlemagne the God in the late spring in regards to him taking for granted the black vote and the pushback he got from the black community. That there were other black celebrities that said we need to broker both sides and our vote should not be taken for granted moving forward. Well, when you look at the protesters in the streets, the Black Lives Matter movement and other protesters that were pushing back on some of the status quo throughout 2020, again, in part because of the pandemic, they weren't necessarily pushing back just on the Trump administration. They were pushing back on their local police chief, who more often than not was appointed by a Democrat. They were pushing back on their local mayors. They were pushing back on their local city councils. And you saw this from my hometown of Pittsburgh all the way to the West Coast in places such as Seattle and Portland. Why is this significant? Because people are now looking at the personalities that are leading them. And when they're finding themselves dissatisfied, they're looking across the political and policy spectrum for solutions. The pandemic exacerbated this and it prompted black voters, and as we have seen, roughly 18% of black male voters to seek a different option and create this emerging new constituency that both sides of the political aisle needs to address. And for those that are looking to purport policies such as school choice and economic empowerment and the like from a pre-market perspective, there's new opportunity there. As we move into the, the new reality of what we're going to have in 2021, we have to ask ourselves, what are people looking for moving forward? And that more often than not, African-Americans gravitate to some of the policy proposals that we've had over the years, particularly when it comes to education, the economy, health care and equality. We have to be better at messaging it. We have to be better at explaining it. And we have to be better positioned at implementing it and ensuring that those policies truly empower people for years to come. Because at this moment, because of the pandemic, because of the election, because of the blowback, which was not just 2020, but going for as far back as Ferguson and even before that, people are looking for new solutions and we have solutions for them. This is a time to reinvigorate our efforts in regards to tweaking how we articulate our proposals and making sure that we have the partnerships in place both the traditional ones and the emerging constituencies that we're going to be dealing with to ensure that people can get the solutions that they need. Thank you, Lenny. And again, we are going to look forward to, you know, peeling back and, and getting into the discussion. So we've got one more presentation before we're able to do that. We're going to bring Mike Gonzalez to the screen. Mike, um, welcome. And we want you uh, to talk about Florida, that, that nail-biting state on election night. It keeps, it continues to to, to put people at, on, on the edge of their chairs as they're waiting to see what's gonna happen. And as you well know, something very interesting happened in Florida this year with uh, the Cuban American community. So I invite you to the screen to, to tell us about it and give us an analysis. Thank you, Angela. And it's, uh, it's a hard thing to follow Lenny and the previous speakers. Look, the election showed three things that I never get tired of, of repeating. Uh, and I, I mentioned prominently in my book, the first is that there is no Latino or Hispanic vote in the country. I can't say this enough. Second, no, demography is not destiny. Uh, that is a policy choice. And the third is that terms such as minorities, people of color, uh, diversity, these are all concepts devised by the left for, for a leftist strategy. Uh, they don't really correspond to, to uh, reality on the ground as the election showed. So, the Cuban-American vote is very, let's go back to brass tacks, what happened locally, the, the Cuban-American vote was really important. Uh, Hialeah, a city north of Miami that has a high concentration of Cuban-Americans, uh, Trump won it with 66% of support, whereas uh, four years ago, he actually split the vote in Hialeah uh, with Hillary Clinton. Now, the Hialeah, Hialeah vote may actually underestimate, uh, understate the Cuban-American vote because Hialeah, it's only 75 percent Cuban-American, one can surmise that the other 25 percent voted less lopsidedly uh, for, for President Trump, which means that the Cuban-American vote 
must be approaching or even over that that 40 point differential as which is huge of 70 to 30 uh that other uh, other polls uh, reveals but it was not only cuban american right uh there were a lot of uh, put this uh, Many Puerto Ricans live in Central Florida, the I-4 corridor, Osceola County. These are, these are still we're still extrapolating, but it looks like Osceola County went to a greater degree for Trump than it did in 2016. Then you had uh, uh, the, 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 the Colombian, Venezuelan, and Nicaraguan American votes in the uh, in the hammocks, for example, an area west of Miami-Dade, uh, one which, which has a, a very large concentration of Colombian Americans. A Miami Herald analysis. Uh, of precincts showed that Trump did 32% better this year than in, two, in 2016. Uh, he lost the hammocks by only 184 votes this year. Uh, four years ago, he lost the hammocks by 9,000 votes. And uh, in, in, in Sweetwater, which is also called uh, Little Managua, Trump's numbers were 33% uh, better than in 2016. He appears to have won the Nicaraguan American vote uh, by 16%. After losing it to Hillary Clinton by 17%, and 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 uh, and of course in the famous Doral, where Mr. Trump has also has a uh, has a, a a some 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 property uh, where many Venezuelans lived, uh, Trump turned in a turned it a 40% loss in 16 into a 1.4% uh, win this year. That is a huge uh, 41 uh, percentage point jump for Trump. So that means that. We can say that uh, Venezuelan Americans and Nicaraguan Americans and Colombian Americans are indeed assimilating. They're assimilating into Cuban Americans, and I just, but not by much, right? They voted for uh, reasons that were very different from the voters that Congressman Canseco so richly described in his discussion. Uh, the, the the South Florida voters had a a well-founded fear of socialism. Now the media uh, sought to portray this as a result of this information. I uh, saw so Christiana Mampour on CNN was one of many who, as late as uh, late October, was was repeating this libel. But but it is a case that it is a, a factual case that the number of elected members of the House of Representatives who declare themselves to be democratic socialists who who sympathize with socialism has doubled. Right? It's not. It's just no longer the squad of AOC, Ilan Omar, uh, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. Now we also have Jamal Bowman, uh, Mondaire Jones, Richie Torres, and Cory Bush. And there was also the fact that that that, uh, that, that Lenny referred to that in in, that in 2020 we had the, the 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 near insurrection that was organized by the Black Black Lives Matters organizations, whose leaders are demonstrably not just Marxists but Marxist-Leninists. Uh, so these reasons are very different from the issues that uh, that that Congressman Canseco discussed. Although in some ways all of these voters uh, were, had one thing in common, they wanted to save the American system from transportation. This, this is, so this is not, as some would have it, a, 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 multi, a rise of a multiracial working class conservatism. The, the voters didn't vote as minorities. Zapata County, which Trump won, and Congressman Canseco uh, talked about, uh, it, which gave such gastritis to the New York Times, is 85% Mexican-American. But what is its white percentage? It's also 85% white. And that is because the voters there are incre incredibly proud of their culture. They're incredibly proud, as they should be, of, of, of their ancestry and of their ways. But they don't see themselves as persons of color. They don't see themselves as victims. These conditions that the New York Times and others in the media ascribe to them are, are just very far from the reality. So this is what happened on the ground. I, I understand that political consultants and ethnic studies professors have families to feed, uh, but they, 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 2020 delivered a reality check uh, to all these theories that is now beginning to sink in, actually. Uh, many leftist observers and writers are, are actually saying, maybe we're wrong in the, in the opinions that we ascribe to the people that we prefer to speak, on whose behalf we prefer to speak. Uh, thank you very much, and I, I look forward to the discussion. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Um, your presentation was outstanding as usual. I want to invite all of our guests back to the screen uh, so we can begin to dialogue uh, about these very important issues and um, the points that you've made uh, about the movement of the country. Um, Congressman, I want to I want to start with you uh, in, in kind of the first round of this, let's call part one of the discussion. You know, 
people are listening very carefully uh, to your presentations and what you're saying and, and the analysis that you put out. And I, I can't imagine but believe that they want to know, you know, how do we take this moment uh, and create long lasting sustaining relationships um, with the communities that have uh, voiced their opinion and their alignment? Um, you know, how does that play out um, as as we move forward in our day to day lives and we're, we're moving out of kind of like a campaigning mode moment? Uh, and as a former member of Congress, um, I'd like for you to kind of address that issue uh, in terms of what elected officials should be doing in this moment. First of all, there is a very common theme with what uh, uh, Ying said, what Lenny said, and what Mike said. And that is the idea that we're American. If somebody comes up and insults us, uh, then we're going to go back into our corner. You know, um, but more than anything else, the idea that we want to efface the idea of we're black or we're Chinese or we're Hispanic or we're this, we're American. And when you start addressing issues about the dinner table, about common issues, and look at Mike brought up Zapata County. Zapata County is a whole bunch of ranchers and business people that have oil and gas on their land. And the same with Frio and uh, LaSalle County and Kennedy and Clayburgh. Kennedy and Play Clayburgh are a very different story. Uh, that area used to be the King Ranch and it still is. But a lot of the people that used to work on those ranches have now married into the King Ranch families and they're part of the team. So what you've got is a, an address by politicians to be leaders, not to see a parade and get in front of it and say, I'm leading this parade, but to start that parade and say, you know what, I hear you. And we're gonna see if we can work together to get it done and not make all sorts of empty promises that are dictated from party headquarters. Yeah, that's, I mean, those, those, are, those are incredible points. Um, the, um, since the Congressman brought you into the conversation, Mike, let's pull you in uh, to kind of continue on his thought in terms of policymakers. I mean, we're looking at the data, the research and the analysis that says that, you know, people are, they still have a, a decent amount of faith in, in what happens at the local level. And there lies in itself an opportunity. And um, we work for a national think tank, one that has reached around the world. And um, so let's talk about this a little bit from a policy standpoint in terms of the work that we do and how that connects back to local areas in terms of creating opportunities for sustaining these relationships and nourishing them. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up actually, Angela. It's not a, it's not a party issue, I think, Members of both parties are equal, can be equally bad when it comes to identity politics. And what the voters have demonstrated, they, they, they've had it up to the back teeth with it. There's a whole uh, range of policies uh, from, from affirmative action, racial preferences, uh, to the, the use of, of the disparate impact doctrine in, the, in, 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 in uh, the administration of policy that deal into this, the creation of, of groups. Of, of ethnic groups uh, a, through the census process of, of minority groups uh, through the census process is another one. But it's not just a question of, that's the policy issue. It's also a question of tone and the language we adopt. I think that Republicans as well as, Republicans many times, conservatives have, bought, have are afraid to speak. They buy into the language of the left. They accept it and speak and use it, their terms. So what I try to do with my writing uh, is to, you know, Milton Friedman said you have to create the right environment where even the wrong politicians will do the right thing. Uh, so I try to, to create to, to, to create an environment where people dispel myths about it. But I think that's the, the great thing about this election is that, oh, my God, it has exploded at the Washington Post and the New York Times when they saw this. I mean, literally, their hair was on fire. I'm su surprised that, you know, the, the building did not catch fire. Because the voters said, no, we're not who you think we are. If the politicians understand this, I think it would be a very, very good thing as well. Thanks a lot. 
So, so Lenny, just kind of picking up on where Mike left off, I mean, you have been um, an integral part of, of the workings of civil society um, through um, a state think tank uh, and in, in your new role um, with really, you know, leading the charge with, with school choice. Talk a little bit about this moment in terms of capturing. I mean, we've been here before um, where you see some movement. Uh, I think there's a really unique story this time in, in 2020 uh, and, and a lot of surprises. But talk about that a little bit from, you know, the work that you do on the ground and, um, you know, participating on the national scene and going back to the local community and what you think this moment holds for opportunity. I think what we learned in 2020, Angela, is that um, you can either have reactions or relationships. And when you look at identity politics, it's more going through the mode of reaction. Somebody feels a particular way, they're from a certain group, I need to react to that in a way where I can show that I am at least engaging it. When you have relationships, you can understand who people are, what makes them unique as their type of, of American. You know, whether you're a Latino American or an African American, you can understand that, but still embrace both the first half of the hyphenation, but more so the second half of the hyphenation. And then from there with relationships, craft the very specific solutions. In our instance, it's school choice, but it also boils down to criminal justice reform and, and making sure you have the economic empowerment, making sure that people have the access to healthcare in a way that's affordable and sensible. Talking about all those things from those different perspectives takes relationship. And one thing that we did learn is the fact that the left was able to react better to some of the, the diversity in America, but they didn't have the relationships that they thought they did, which is why you saw the protests across the country, New York City, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland. These are run by Democrats in some instances, upwards of 100 years worth of being run by Democrats because they were used to reacting. And then the reaction from the other side of the political aisle was, we're gonna react by not engaging. The moment allows us to say, do we want to have relationships? Because the relationships allow us to deepen what we do on a regular basis, find really empowering policies, and then actually win the future, not just engage it for the sake of optics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that the, the relationship component of it is really the human spirit um, that you're talking about. Ying, I wanna pull you in. Uh, I mean, you've done such incredible work on the ground. I mean, your reputation is just incredible across the board. And you saw in California, and you, I, I thought it was really neat how you were emphasizing, look, this is a blue state where this movement has taken place. Um, so with, with your activism and your leadership and, and, and your connectivity you know, across the country, uh, what does this moment say for being able to capture into the spirit of what happened um, in in California, and 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 what where I really want to go here is that you I mean you talked about the Asian American community, you talked about Chinese Americans, but the one of the charts that you put up showed a rejection of that proposition across communities. So in this moment, where's the opportunity to begin to thread the needle and bring more of those people together? Um, and, 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 and show them how to be a voice on other issues that, that they may have um, a common viewpoint about. Let me preface my response by saying, I think my reputation's only intact because Mike Gonzalez has not bad mouth, <laughs> you know, but all my flaws. So I, I, I am certainly grateful to him as well. Um, and um, Angela, I, I so appreciate your question because I, I think um, that chart that I put up, you know, of um, people from, different parties from different races rejecting racial preferences that is key um, so even though you know even though we what what i was describing in my presentation was very much about the political awakening of a of asian americans particularly um, recent chinese immigrants um, um, in california i i think that the success 
um, was possible because the concept of equality that we were fighting for resonated across the board um, with Californians all, you know, from all walks of life. And, and if you um, take a closer look at those um, numbers I showed, um, about half of the Latinos who were polled right before the election said they were going to vote against Proposition 16. And the, this is one group of people that the entire California um, sort of far left establishment said that racial preferences are supposed to serve. And that so so in other words, you know, you had a huge group of um, uh, a huge swath of Latino voters across the state who rejected that viewpoint. And one of my favorite digital ads that our campaign uh, campaign put up was by by a very staunch Latino supporter of ours. And and I liked it you know, so much because he said in the short 30 second ad, we don't need permission from the government to think for ourselves, to act for ourselves. Um, we don't need you to judge us by these immutable characteristics. So I'm paraphrasing, so this that's not an exact quote, but that's the gist of it. And, and I think, you know, we, um, I think that's a, a mentality that is so admirable, that resonates with so many people. And I think, you know, e even though um, Chinese immigrants who come to this country, particularly recent Chinese immigrants, might have very different experiences compared to, to Latino immigrants, um, I, I think that this concept of, you know, we can, we can act and think for ourselves, um, that is one theme worth exploring in the days and years ahead. Um, another theme that I think is is very important for those people who care about equality, for people who reject racial preferences, is that the, the cross-party pollination um, was absolutely key. Um, in another very reputable, reputable poll that was done in California, about 63% of independents said they were going to reject racial preferences and, and they said that right before the campaign as well and and without those voters like that and of course the um you know the the percentage was smaller amongst democrats but some of our campaigns most diehard supporters were democrats liberal lifelong liberal democrats who felt that you know the that that all of this racial grievance was entirely opposite to what they believed in. It was entirely counter to the ideals of equality that they had fought for in their lives. And, and so I, I think, you know, for whether it's for new immigrants like the more recent Chinese immigrants, and, and I give credit to, I think the, the people who really deserve credit are our, our vast army of volunteers who were on the ground, who were out there, you know, every weekend um, fighting for this initiative um, or fighting against racial preferences. But um, I, I think that, you know, what they were fighting for, this concept of equality, it probably meant something a little different from them, um, to, to them. But at the same time, it resonated with all kinds of other people across the state. And we should absolutely remember that, you know, that this is, um, that that those people who may not be traditional allies that, you know, don't count them out. Um, they're, you know, that these values are American values. Don't assume that someone is of a particular party that they somehow ought to be just cast aside. Um, so I think those are some of the lessons we should keep in mind moving forward. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that because I think what, what that does is that leads us into, and we've got a question from um, Michael Laundry, and he's asking about you know identity politics and mike i want to bring you in because i know this is like your moment to sing 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 um but on on, on in the discussion of identity politics and we we're using the word diversity here uh and just kind of threading the needle that ying's ying who's just you know started to thread uh mike you know we've got identity politics we're talking about diversity trying to honor um, the multi-ethnic um, backgrounds. And I think people get downright confused with some of this language and how it plays back and forth uh, in terms of wanting to be honored um, for, for who they are. But as an American under the, 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 the banner of, Amer of, of their American identity, 
and not being pushed into a group to be oppressed. So Mike, can you jump in and just kind of clarify and talk about that for, for the folks who, who may be struggling with the use of language and also the, the intersection of politics inside of, of these conversations. And then Congressman, I wanna pull you in um, to, to, to elaborate and get your thoughts there. Yeah, thanks, Angela. So very briefly, one of the things, one of the reasons why it is so hard to talk about this is that the woke, the people who have engineered the identity politics have hijacked one of the, the most important impulses as human being, which is the impulse to be compassionate. We have an impulse that we share as, 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 a, as a, one of our faculties as humans is to be compassionate. In America, you pull for the underdog. So it's very hard when, when, when certain strategies present themselves as pulling for the oppressed, the victim, the marginalized, it's very hard to say, well, no, this is not really what is happening here. I can assure you that nobody gets up in, in, in Guerrero State, Mexico, one day and say, I'm going to trek across Mexico and bring my family into the United States because I want them to grow up, my, I want my children to grow up to be an aggrieved victim. That is not what my family uh, thought when I was, when they, they put in to leave Cuba to come to America when I was six. I can assure you neither my father nor my mother said we have to, we have to take him to America so he can grow up with resentment and, and be a victim and, and be filled with grievances. So this misunderstanding of what human nature is by the left has come back and bid them in a, in a huge way in a certain part of their, of their anatomy this year. Um, that, that is really the, the, the gist of it. Identity politics is not a grassroots demand for attention and respect and, 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 and attention by, by, by people from the grassroots. No, it is a something devised and implemented by the grass tops. And that is something that I get into in my book a lot. I'm gonna leave it there in a minute and a half because I wanna hear from Congressman Canseco. Um, let, me, let me start from what I talked about earlier. I talked about the Patron system. And the patron system meaning that uh, a, uh, a neighbor or uh, an organization leader, uh, his opinion is the one that controls. They're the ones that tell you what you want and what you don't want and where you go. These are the beneficiaries of identity politics. And that's who the left goes for, those people that can rally them up and say, you have been oppressed, this is what you're owed, and we're going to get it for you. And I think that that's wrong because no one can tell me, um, as Ying said and as others said, uh, no one can tell me what I want and what I need. And no uh, organizer or neighborhood guy should be able to tell us how we are grieved. But when you get populations that are newly arrived and are confused, they're easily manipulated uh, and they're easily manipulated and controlled by these patrons that that um, gather them up and say this is where we're going to go and if you want a nice community you all better play, play along because this is what's going to come to us if we go this way and i think that's wrong that's very anti-american in my point of view now with that said i think we also need to look at the quality and the uh, quantity of people that are coming through our Mexican border, our border with Mexico. You've got people that are coming into this country because their country failed them in giving them what they want, and they're going to be expecting the United States to do the same. And those are the type of people that are very easily controlled by the patron that's going to tell them, you are aggrieved and we're going to take care of. And then you have those that know full well that in the United States, uh, if the light is red, you don't cross. If the light is green, you cross. And that there is a rule of law that you're going to follow. Because otherwise, if they wanted to bring a piece of Mexico into this country, they should have stayed back in Mexico, for that matter. Um, so the whole idea of identity po politics is anathema to what we seek in this country to be American, not to be African-American or Mexican-American or Cuban-American or Chinese-American or whatever, but to be, in my state, Texan-American. 
And, and I think that that is the beauty of this country. And that's what we're seeing now, even in those counties in South Texas that didn't quite turn, but are ready to be turned. So, so Lenny, um, the congressman just kind of touched on a point that I want to bring back to you in terms of looking at the black male vote. You know, there's there's a lot to peel back here, and I'm just looking forward to going into the next year of, of being able to do some focus groups and and penetrate in on some of these questions. But from your viewpoint, your perspective, um, this I can think for myself piece and looking at President Trump's leadership style and um, this this magnetic attraction into um, black males, do you think that in addition to policy, um, that that because Congressman Conseco just said, you know, people who are new to the country can be kind of fooled. But when you look at the black community, the, the black male voters that we're looking at, they, they, they've been, this, America's been their home from, from birth, you know, um, and um, their, their second, third, fourth, gen, fifth, generations and generations of, of um, family members have been here on, on American soil. So talk about that a little bit, because I believe um, as we look at the different um, um, occurrences across the country. The one thing that we're not really pinpointing with the black male voter is like some local occurrence that happened. It seemed like it, it was something more, a larger maybe coming on for a, a long period of time. So talk about that in relation to identity po politics and, and what you think uh, we're seeing here. I think that, it, ironically enough, African Americans, generally speaking, seem to gravitate the most towards identity politics for several reasons. Number one, if you look at the the egregious aspects of what many many groups have gone through in America, you you have only one group that's ever been enslaved for multiple decades and generations, and that's been African Americans. At the same exact time, if you look at the history of African Americans, they also are the one group that's continuously trying to say if you just give me a chance to truly be American, I'll show you. You put me through Reconstruction, you have the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, but maybe if I go through World War I and be a veteran, maybe you'll see me as a true American. Oh, the rise of the Klan in, a tw in the, the 1920s, the Great Depression, maybe if I serve in World War II, you'll see me as a genuine American. Oh, we have the Civil Rights Movement, maybe if we have this legislation, you give me a chance to be on an evil playing field, you'll see I'm truly an American. I think sometimes people get it misunderstood that even African-Americans always want this reality of identity politics, when in fact, if you look at the history, the history of African-Americans has always been, if you give me the opportunity to show you that I'm just as an American as anybody else, that I want to do that. So if you start taking that and contrasting that to what transpired in 2020, what you'll see is a genuine frustration with what the status quo has been. Donald Trump style coming into 2016 and said, listen, let's drain the swamp. Let's break the system. I'm tired of the establishment. If you look at the pushback that you've been seeing from particularly black males from Ferguson, if you go back as far as Rodney King in the 1990s on through for 25 to 30 years, it's listen, we have tried to do it in a, in a peaceful, nonviolent way. We've tried to do it through the political system. We've tried to be patient. I'm tired of being patient. You told me if we just build up our ranks within one political party, even if we get an African-American president, we'll finally meet that we shall overcome moment. Well, here I sit in 2020, 12 years after Barack Obama was inaugurated or, or was elected, 11 years after he was inaugurated, and here I still sit in the same community with the same schools, with the same lack of opportunity, and I'm still having the same problems with the police. They've said enough's enough. So when you start looking at style and tone, you have people that are trying to leverage the frustration of what they've had to go through with identity politics to get back to the altruistic goal and theme that there's been throughout the history of African-Americans, which is simply, if you give me a chance to show you that I'm an equal American, I will gladly be an equal American, whether it's being an Olympian, being a veteran, being a teacher, or being somebody that's working side by side with you every single day.
Thank you so much, Lenny. I can't believe it. We are completely out of time. Uh, this has been a, a, a very insightful conversation, a very needed conversation. Congressman Conseco, thank you. Ying Ma, thank you. Lenny McAllister and Mike Gonzalez, thank you so much. And to all of you who joined us, we appreciate um, you engaging and sending your questions in. And uh, Mike, I think we've got to do this again because we've only gotten through part of the conversation. Again, thank you for, for participating. And on behalf of our president, Kay Coles James, we, we, we will forever be indebted to your friendship and partnership with the Heritage Foundation. This actual webinar uh, will be available online. And so if there are those who missed it and you want to um, uh, send it their way, please feel free to do so. And again, thank you so much from the Heritage Foundation. Have a wonderful afternoon.